Hello, and welcome once again to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. A little over a month ago, I volunteered at what was, unfortunately at the time, the final Ironman Boulder. After so many years of participating in the sport and being supported over those years by so many wonderful volunteers, it was really nice to be able to give a little bit back and support athletes making their way through a long day. I volunteered before, but mostly in the capacity of a physician staffing the medical tent. This was my first time doing something different, in this case, helping unload bikes being transported from T2 to the finish line. While I was there, I happened to witness some pretty lamentable behavior by a few athletes who, for whatever reason, had been unable to finish the race. The way Boulder was set up, bikes were taken from athletes at T2 and then transported to the finish area where they were racked in a holding area. Bikes were free to be picked up after a set time that was very well advertised and announced far in advance. This didn't stop some people who had been unable to complete the race from coming by and trying to get their bikes out early. When told of the process and the need to wait until about 5.30, a couple of those people became absolutely irate and behaved in a manner that made me fear for the volunteers and Ironman staff safety. Look, I completely understand the aggravation of not having the day you hoped for after who knows how long of training, and I more than understand the sentiment of wanting to get the heck out of Dodge and far away from a celebratory finish line that you'll not get to savor yourself. I can even understand the frustration of having to deal with what seems like an arbitrary rule that to you may not make sense, but come on. Threatening legal action or even violence against volunteers and event staff? Cursing up a storm in front of kids and members of yours and other families? Is this really the way to deal with a personal setback? Is this how you reward the sacrifice that family and friends have made to support you in your journey to your day that, even though it didn't go as hoped for, still was a day that you were alive and participating in a sport that you love? Never mind the poor volunteers who gave up their time to be there for you and now have to endure what you're throwing at them. I saw many people come to the bike corral and be told the same story, and the vast majority accepted the information and made arrangements to come back at a time that was convenient to them. But the two or three who reacted in the reprehensible manner in which they did left an indelible impression on me and everyone else who was there. While they're not at all representative of the people who participate in our sport, they had the effect of leaving an outsized impression on everyone who is in the vicinity. Now, I know that I don't need to remind my listeners of the importance of being gracious to race volunteers and staff, or that I don't need to point out that such behavior is clearly not acceptable. Still, it's safe to say that we all occasionally have days when we don't perform the way we want to, and maybe our emotions threaten to get the better of us. I would urge everyone to just remember, should such an occasion come to pass, that no matter how bad you might think things be at that moment, they could always be worse, and taking out your frustrations on well-meaning volunteers or event staff is not the way to make yourself feel better. Heck, that seems like a decent approach for pretty much any situation, not just at a race. On the show today, Heath Dotson has had a successful career as a cyclist in the professional developmental ranks, as a triathlete, and now as Masters National Champion on the track. He also is a coach and a co-founder of AeroCamp, a consulting and specialized fitting service that employs all the tricks in the book to eke out all of the free speed possible for the cyclists who visit them in North Carolina. Today, he joins me for a discussion on all things aero. The triathlete Routard goes to Texas for one of the older 70.3 races on the WTC calendar. Previously known as the Buffalo Springs Half and now as the Lubbock 70.3 race, this race has a long history and a reputation for being very challenging. Well, things have changed, and while the heat and winds remain, the course has become much more forgiving. I'll have a review coming up a little later on. First, though, 
You likely have heard or read about some of the recent tragedies to befall athletes participating in our sport. Triathlon, like all endurance sports, are on the whole beneficial to health and well-being, but do still carry some degree of risk, especially to certain people. It's easy when hearing of the unexpected death of a previously healthy triathlete to become concerned that these kinds of bolts from the blue can happen to anyone, and this can lead to fears that for the most part are unfounded. On this episode, I answer a question related to sudden unexpected deaths in triathlon, specifically those related to the development of swimming-induced pulmonary edema. How common is this entity, and how much does any one individual athlete need to worry that they might be stricken next? If you are listening to the sound of my voice, then I'm fairly certain that you are not someone that I need to convince of the health benefits of exercise and an active lifestyle. It has long been understood that when compared to sedentary individuals, those who participate in a regular exercise program, even one with as little as only a few hours of activity a week, have lower rates of obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and stroke, among many other benefits. However, for those of you who take your fitness to the next level, that is to say training and racing and triathlons, running events, or other similar activities, you likely have also come across stories of how exercise can predispose to unexpected sudden death as well. While this may seem paradoxical, it is unfortunately true and can actually be pretty easily explained. Put simply, those who train and race build their cardiovascular systems to be extremely strong and durable by virtue of placing that system under increasing amounts of stress. However, it's that very stress that can occasionally tip things over and lead to a cardiac event in susceptible individuals, and this occasionally can unfortunately result in an unexpected death. To illustrate this paradox, we can look at the statistics of sudden cardiac death to see how being active confers protection in the long run, but may heighten danger for some on the day of events. In the general population, the risk of sudden cardiac death is 40 to 100 deaths per 100,000 people per year. In athletes, that number is 1 to 2 per 100,000 per year, so a very significant improvement. However, if we reduce that to the risk of sudden cardiac death on any given day, for the general population, the risk is 0.1 to 0.27 per 100,000 people per day, while for athletes doing a marathon, it's 1 per 100,000, and for triathletes, it's 1.7 per 100,000. Now, this disparity leads me to this episode's listener medical question that was relayed to me on behalf of several athletes by a good friend of the podcast and professional triathlete herself, Maddie Pesh. Maddie had heard from several athletes who had become concerned about swimming-induced pulmonary edema as a potential cause of death in triathletes. This concern arose after the recent reported deaths of athletes during the swim at a couple of different high-profile triathlons. This concern is completely understandable, and while the subject matter of this episode may sound and be alarming, it's my hope that rather than make people even more concerned, this segment is going to serve to allay fears by explaining what's known about this topic, as well as reviewing the facts around triathlon deaths in general. Sudden deaths during athletic events are shocking for many reasons. Victims are young, often in peak physical condition, and in many cases their deaths are the first and only sign of any underlying illness. In reality, though, when researchers have looked more closely at these cases, almost all of these people had signs or symptoms of cardiac disease before the fateful day. So rather than being a complete bolt from the blue, these athletes' deaths were often presaged by less severe symptoms that happened in training but were not attributed to a potentially fatal underlying issue and thus were unfortunately ignored. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, triathlon has almost twice as many deaths on a per-participant level than do marathons. Triathlons differ from marathons in another respect, and that is in the timing of those deaths. In marathons, when deaths occur, they tend to occur very late in the race or even just after the finish, whereas for triathlons, the vast majority of deaths happen early, in the first minutes of the race. And I'm sure that most of you will immediately understand why this difference exists and what it's attributable to, and that is, of course, because of the presence of a swim in triathlons and all of the stresses that places on the heart right at the beginning of the race when compared to running-only events. This is an important distinction and worth spending some time on. Researchers in Minnesota compiled data from a 30-year period comprising well over 5 million participants in triathlons. During that time period, there were 135 race-related sudden deaths, resuscitated cardiac arrests, and trauma deaths. The average age of the victims was 47, and of those 135, 85%, or 115, were male. Two-thirds happened during the swim, 16% during the bike, and only 11% of them happened during the run segments, while 6% occurred during post-race recovery. Most of the deaths that occurred on the bike segment of races were related to traumatic injuries sustained in bicycle vehicle collisions or in collisions with fixed objects like guardrails. Of the deaths and cardiac arrests, almost half occurred in sprint distance races, a quarter in Olympic, and the remainder in half or full Ironmans. Of the 68 participants whose previous race experience was known, 26 of them were competing in their very first triathlon. And of these first-time triathletes, most, over two-thirds, were, complete, were competing in sprint rather than intermediate or long-distance races. So based on this study, we see a few important trends. First, older athletes have higher risk than younger ones, especially those participating in shorter distance races and those who are new to the sport. This makes a lot of sense as these athletes may not yet have the best fitness and short races are often associated with the highest levels of exertion. Second, men are disproportionately represented in triathlon deaths for reasons that remain unclear. And finally, the swim remains the most dangerous of the events in a triathlon, to the point that running in a triathlon at the run segment has a far lower rate of unexpected cardiac deaths than do running-only events. What then is going on with the swim? Well, there are a few theories that have been put forward to explain the relative dangers of the open water swim in triathlon. These include a spike in adrenaline in the early phase of competition that can play a role in triggering arrhythmias, particularly in athletes with underlying but unsuspected cardiovascular disease. Some participants may be unfamiliar with and untrained for open water swimming and therefore may have difficulty dealing with adverse environmental conditions such as large waves and cold water temperatures. Moreover, collisions among swimmers are routine as anyone who has done a triathlon knows all too well. This is important because a substantial proportion of deaths occur in the first-time triathlete. Finally, water rescue is logistically complex, given an athlete's difficulty in resting or signaling for assistance if an emergency situation does arise, and therefore when things go awry, they tend to often result in the worst possible outcome. A final hypothesis, and one that has begun to attract more attention from medical researchers, is the concept of swimming-induced pulmonary edema as a possible precipitant for sudden, unexpected deaths during the swim. Pulmonary edema simply refers to a displacement of fluid from the blood vessels into the breathing space of the lungs. When the lungs become full of fluid, they cannot effectively participate in gas exchange, and so a person becomes rapidly very ill and has a serious risk of death. Water immersion or swimming, causes blood redistribution from the periphery to the heart and pulmonary vessels, causing an increase in central blood volume and of pressures in the pulmonary vessels, which can exacerbate the potential for pulmonary edema. 
This can be extreme and precipitate pulmonary edema specifically in susceptible individuals, even in those without any obvious underlying medical issues. The effect is worse in cold water and especially during exertion. When swimming-induced pulmonary edema comes on, it produces very rapid shortness of breath, cough with pinks, frothy sputum, and occasionally chest pain, though this tends to be seen mostly in older individuals. The process can happen very quickly, and if not identified and treated, can indeed be fatal. But therein lies the rub, because to date, there's really no great evidence as to how often this happens, nor whether or not it even plays a significant role as a cause of unexpected deaths during the swim. The reason for this is because when a competitor dies during the swim, they always have fluid in their lungs on autopsy. This can be due to the aspiration of water after losing consciousness, from developing pulmonary edema as a consequence of what was actually a primary cardiac event, or from the attempts at cardiac resuscitation itself. It is simply not known how often swimming-induced pulmonary edema occurs or how often it is the primary inciting event in a sudden, unexpected athlete death. What can be said is that the entity does exist and that it probably plays some role in these events, but how much of a role remains impossible to define and will probably never really be known. Now, as I said at the top, a lot of this conversation can come across as alarming and distressing, but I want the most important parts of this conversation to be the remainder of this segment and the remainder of what I have to say on the subject. First and foremost, while deaths during triathlon may be somewhat more common than in running-only events, they are still exceedingly rare, 135 deaths in over 5 million participants over 30 years. And taken as a whole, you are still far better off in the long run to be training and racing for these events. The health and emotional benefits of participating in this sport continue to far outweigh any potential risks. Second, there is unfortunately very little that can be done to identify those who are at increased risk for developing sudden unexpected deaths from a cardiac cause before they participate in sport. That isn't to say that there isn't anything that can be done, only that there isn't any really great way to screen everyone to find those few who have the highest risks. Let me explain. Several researchers over the years have attempted to screen athletes en masse to try and identify those who are at risk of unexpected cardiac deaths in order to try and prevent them when they participate in sport. And this can be from any cause. Unfortunately, time and time again, these studies have proved ineffective. And the reason for this is because the main tools that we have at our disposal to do such testing on a broad scale are electrocardiograms, or EKGs, and echocardiograms, or ultrasounds of the heart. Now, those two tests give very different kind of complementary information, and ideally, everyone would get both of them. But echoes are expensive, not at all practical, and are in fact rarely really all that helpful since they only identify certain structural abnormalities that account for a very small number of these cases. EKGs, on the other hand, are very cheap and easy to obtain. However, they're not perfect at identifying problems, and worse, they frequently lead to false positives that cause more testing and patient worry both of which end up being unnecessary. Consequently, medical societies have banded together to provide guidance for physicians on exactly who should be screened and how that screening should be performed. And it turns out that screening really should be reserved for those who have already exhibited some kind of symptoms or who have a very concerning family history. Since a retrospective study found that 29% of athletes who died suddenly during competitions had previously had symptoms suggestive of cardiac disease before their cardiac arrest, it's important that all athletes carefully consider the following two questions. Number one, have you ever felt severely dizzy or faint, unexpectedly short of breath, or had chest pain during or immediately after exercise? 
And number two, do you have any first-degree relatives who died suddenly or had severe cardiac disease under age 60? An answer of yes to either of these questions should prompt immediate screening by a qualified physician. Now, if you didn't answer yes, then screening is unnecessary, and you really don't need to worry too much about this happening to you. That's not to say that it won't or can't happen, but just that it's exceedingly unlikely. Still, the research that has been done on this topic has been used to inform both USAT and the WTC swim start policies. This is the rationale behind the rules around allowable water temperatures for races, the elimination of mass starts from Ironman races, and the Ironman Swim Smart program that dictates how swim courses are laid out for race directors, stipulates the number and spacing of of rescue boats, and changed the rules to allow for athletes to get needed support during the swim without incurring penalties. Swim Smart also encourages athletes to not make a race their first ever open water swim experience, to stay within themselves during the swim, go easy at the beginning and ease into race pace, and most importantly, to be self-aware and ask for help at any sign of distress without worry of adverse consequences like a DNF. Now, after all of that, I'm hoping that most of you will be much less concerned about the likelihood of death or pulmonary edema while on the swim at your next race. However, I know that it's not uncommon for people to become short of breath at some point, especially early in the swim, and it wouldn't be unusual if panic and fear suddenly could overtake these people, no matter how rational they could be with respect to the facts and statistics on dry land. So here's my advice. If you become suddenly short of breath during the swim, first and foremost, remain calm. Anxiety and panic only serve to make things worse. Staying calm will help you self-assess and likely sort out the problem. Rest assured that pulmonary edema is almost certainly not your issue. But if you have chest pain or start coughing up frothy sputum, clearly this is an indication that something is not right and signal for help immediately. But 99.9% of the time, that's not going to be the case. Rather, you've either gone too hard or have done what's referred to as breath stacking. Essentially, you've inhaled more than you have exhaled, and your lungs are simply full of air that needs to be expelled before the sensation of shortness of breath is going to go away. So try these steps. Slow down your stroke rate dramatically, and focus as much as possible on long, slow, and complete exhalations. If after a few strokes you still feel short of breath, switch to breast or backstroke to give yourself some extra time to recover. And if that doesn't work, grab onto one of the support watercraft and rest. Your symptoms will almost certainly improve at this point, and then you can begin swimming again, albeit at a slower, more measured pace. Stay relaxed and keep thinking positive thoughts. You will make it to the finish. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest today is Heath Dodson. Heath raced full-time as a Category 1 cyclist for nearly 12 years and raced for a season in Europe with Club Cercle Gambara, Orleans, a top amateur team based just outside of Paris. After a six-year hiatus from endurance sports due to injury, Heath took up triathlon in 2009. And during his triathlon adventures, he qualified for the Age Group Worlds team, 70.3 Worlds, and the Ironman World Championship in Kona in 2016. Seeking new adventures, Heath has returned to a single sport life focusing on cycling, and in particular track cycling, where he is current Masters National Champion in the Individual Pursuit and is the Masters World Team Pursuit Silver Medalist. Heath has coached athletes since the early 1990s and became a full-time coach under his own brand, HD Coaching, in 2011. He has currently expanded to include bike fitting services at his studio in Asheville, North Carolina. 
In 2013, in the quest for making athletes faster, Heath co-founded AeroCamp with fellow coach Brian Stover. Since the founding of AeroCamp, Heath has put in hundreds of hours in at both the velodrome and wind tunnel, fine-tuning athletes' positions with great success. He's also been involved with several manufacturers, testing and refining new products in the wind tunnel. Heath has lived in Asheville, North Carolina since 1995, and he joins me on the line from there today. Welcome to the podcast, Heath. Thanks, Jeff. We talk a lot in triathlon about the importance of arrow, uh, being arrow for as much as possible, but it's hard for athletes to understand really how that translates into time saved. So is there any way that you can sort of quantify how being more arrow really quantifies or translates into, you know, uh, results? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, I think there's there's a, a few kind of things out there that are, I, I would say, I don't know if I would call them rules of thumb or not, but, um, you know, I think especially back in the days when uh, arrow bars were just coming out, uh, people were like, well, if I stick these weird looking things on my bike, how much time is this going to save me in a 40K? So somebody who is, let's say, they were able to do uh, roughly, you know, an hour for a 40K on a standard bike, which would be pretty fast. Um, you know, aero bars would save you about two minutes over that 40K, so almost a full mile an hour, um, which is uh, pretty significant. Um, and then, you know, obviously, as, as things kind of um, go on, you know, things get more refined, um, things get a lot you know, a lot better, you know, the original aero bars were just sort of round tubes sort of bent to a shape to kind of get you there. And now everything is, now everything is carbon fiber and, and shaped, uh, you know, with airfoils and bikes and are that way and wheels have improved throughout the years and things like that. So quantify it in Watts as well, you know, so, uh, the, an, an easy rule of thumb for people to sort of, think about when they're seeing anything in print or anything like that is uh, basically I, I call it the three five. So uh, 50 grams of drag um, saves you roughly five Watts, which roughly saves you a half a second per kilometer. So if you can, uh, if you can kind of think about it that way, you know, when you're looking at, you know, charts of whatever, you know, whoever's producing a chart for, you know, whatever tunnel testing they've done, whether it's wheels or bikes or that kind of thing, you can kind of roughly put that into uh, a place where, uh, you know, a, a person can say, well, okay, if I, if I get this, if I, you know, there was, there was something on uh, one of the forums that uh, somebody was selling a little fairing piece um, and, you know, they're like, oh, it really saves you a lot of time. And when you looked at it, it was like, 10 grams of drag, which is like one watt, which is basically the margin of error. So it's like to be smart with your money and, and, and know how to look at what people are selling you to make sure that, uh, you know, you're not just wasting your money. So. Now, I think you mentioned something in there that I want to go back to for a second, because one of the things about how these time savings are reported is tied to the speed that the cyclist is moving. So mm -hmm. if I understand correctly, a lot of these things are related to a fixed speed. So for example, you mentioned 50 grams relates to, uh, did you say five watts? 
five watts, roughly. Yeah, yeah, so 50 grams relates to five watts, but that's at a speed of how much? Well, so so when, when we test in the tunnel, um, in order to get uh, in order to get results that we can use, uh, we generally test at 38 miles an hour or 30 30 miles an hour. Sorry, not 38, but 48 k an hour or 30 miles an hour. Um, and that's you can scale that up or down um, very easily. So we look at something that's called CDA, uh, which is coefficient of drag by area. Um, so without getting too far out in the weeds here, essentially CDA gives us a number that regardless of speed um, is generally relatively constant. Um, and so we can translate that into savings. So even, so I'll give you an example in this case. So if it's 50 grams of drag, five watts, um, and so half a second per kilometer, so 20 seconds over an Olympic distance race, let's say, so 40K. Um, even if you're going slower, that time savings will still hold true. Um, and so it's, and interestingly enough, um, the, the slower you go, the more, um, the more time you're going to save because you're out there on the course longer. So um, you can still scale that either way and, and still essentially get a good, a good rough estimate of, of what's going on there. Okay. So that's important because I had always, I had always thought that being more aero actually was more important for the faster cyclists, but you make the point that actually for slower cyclists, it's equally, if not more important because, because they're in the, on the bike longer, they can actually save more time. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting if something saves one person, you know, say, uh, somebody who's, who's going, uh, who goes roughly an hour for 40 K saves them a minute. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but if somebody who is more like an hour and 15 minute person, it's going to save them say a minute and a half. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's roughly, uh, it's going to save them more time. It's not necessarily going to make them as fast as the stronger person, but yeah, the, the, and it, it's just simply because you're, you're out, um, you're out on the course a lot longer. So, you know, technically those gains kind of continue on, you know, they don't just go away, magically go away at an hour. Uh, they're, they're kind of always, arrow is always on, so to speak. Okay. Now, uh, I know you, you talk about how you do bike fitting and, uh, I spoke with, uh, Matt Steinmetz on the podcast, uh, not too long ago. And we had a discussion about the compromise between being maximally arrow and also being able to be comfortable. I'm curious how you prioritize those two things because, you know, I've seen I've seen videos on Instagram and YouTube where some bike fitters will will put their cyclists on these fit bikes and put them in these very very extreme aero positions, but they mm -hmm. they look a not very comfortable and b not mm -hmm. very safe because their heads are so far down. There's just no way these people are going to be able to ride that way and be able to see anything in front of them. So I, I'm just curious when you're doing a fit on an mm -hmm. age grouper, where do you sort of, you know, make that line between, you know, being, a, being as maximally arrow as possible, but being comfortable so that they're able to sustain the position and also of course be safe. Right. Yeah. And 
the the thing that I kind of go back to is always that the the fastest position is the one that you can hold the longest. So essentially, and, and that the, the other thing that we've learned um, going to the wind tunnel a lot is that, uh, and I talked about this with somebody else not too long ago, is that everybody used to be, oh, lower is more arrow, lower, lower, lower. Um, and the reality of it is, is that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, it might be for a few people, but um, the the lower once you get to a certain point, once you're back, uh, if you're if you're a type of person who can get a flat back, some people can't. But if you're that type of person, once you get your back parallel to the ground or or thereabouts, you don't need to go any lower. Um, People, I, I've seen people get super low. They kind of get an arch in their back, their heads below their back, and they're actually exposing their back to the wind, so they actually slow down. So, one of the things that uh, I do when we're testing people in the wind tunnel is actually start from their start position, and you know, if they look like they have a decent position and the numbers come back good, we raise them. We start raising the front of the bike to see if we can open everything up. And so, you know, I look at, you know, hip angle, um, back angle and that kind of thing to get into a decent range so that people can actually, especially for triathletes, you, you got, you have to eat on the bike, you have to digest food, especially in the longer races. Um, and you have to be comfortable. So that being said, I see, I've seen a lot of bike fits and I see a lot of bike fits where people essentially don't know what they're doing and they, they go in and they're like, Oh, I do Ironman or I do half Ironman. So they're like, Oh, okay, well you need to be comfortable. And they come in and they look like they have essentially taken, um, clip on bars and slapped them on a road bike, even they're on a $10,000, you know, tri bike. Um, so that's that's kind of going in the opposite opposite direction. I, I think I think you can be in a very aerodynamic position and uh, be in a comfortable position at the same time. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Uh, a lot of that has to do with kind of your contact point. So obviously a saddle that you can sit on and sit on for a long time and be comfortable and having the uh, arrow bars in a, in a situation where you're supporting your weight um, structurally and not kind of um, muscularly, um, which, you know, tends to fatigue people. Um, as far as being able to see, yeah, I think that's, that's obviously important, especially it's maybe a little less so if you're a time trialist versus a triathlete, but as we all know, if you're doing 70.3 or uh, an Ironman distance, you're going to be out on course with a lot of other people. So you kind of have to know where you're going. You can't just kind of tuck your head and go unless you're, you know, unless you're one of the pro waves where you're just sort of, you're, you're kind of out there on your own. And then in a course, say like Arizona, you have laps. So then even those guys have to be looking up and, and see what's going on because uh, they're starting to pass people. So like I said, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive, um, but, you know, there there might be a compromise here or there. 
Um, but I, I still feel like you can get a very, very aerodynamic position and be very comfortable at the same time. I, I think, I think the, the idea of you can either be aero or comfortable that, that doesn't sit, sit with me. I, I think you can, like I said, I think you can do both. Yeah. And I like what you said about the, the most aerodynamic position is the position that you can hold for a long time. And I think a lot of fitters, at least what I've seen, they make that mistake where they put them on the fit bike and they're only on it for five minutes. And so mm-hmm. the athlete really doesn't know. And, uh, you know, I think you, you, the fitter has to be prepared to see the cyclist more than once because you got to send them out on that fit, see how they do, and then be ready to adjust based on, yeah, on ab- feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's generally what I do as well. You know, I, I, whether it's a road bike fit or, or a tri bike fit, I'll put somebody on the fit bar on the fit bike or their bike or whatever we're doing. And we'll get them in a place and they're like, Oh yeah, this is great. I'm like, okay, so this is a static environment. This thing is not moving. You're not moving. You're not going up and down hills. Um, go out and ride it, report back to me. If it's great, then great. If it's not come back in and we'll fix you, you know? Um, and, that sort of you, you have it has to be dynamic. You know, you can't just sort of, uh, and that that's that's the other thing too that that I see a lot of times is people come in. Well, I got a retool fit. Well, that's great, and retool is a great tool. And this is this is the analogy I use all the time. You know, retool is basically a really expensive te- uh, tape measure. Um, and it really, it really matters as to who's using it. You know, I, I always tell people I can swing a hammer, but you wouldn't want me building your house. <laughs> um, and it's kind of the same thing with retool. A lot of times is that retool kind of gives you or did it's under the specialized banner now, but, um, they kind of give you these, this range of angles that you, that is like, okay, here's the angles for, tri bikes here's the angles for road bikes and if somebody hasn't if somebody hasn't ever ridden um in the tri position or tt position for 112 miles they don't they don't know what what is and what isn't possible so they just sort of like okay well we'll just go with the angles and you know, it, it can be a disaster. So by all means, if somebody, whoever's listening, if you're getting a fit, get a fit from somebody who has uh, plenty of experience um, with the distances, whether they've actually, um, you know, ridden, ridden it or not, but somebody who definitely fits, you know, triathletes and time trialists and not somebody who's just, um, who does road or, or cross, you know, that's the thing with me. I could put somebody on a cross bike and probably get them pretty close, but that's not my, my specialty. So I would send them somewhere else. So what are, I mean, you mentioned aero bars earlier. We know aero bars are a big, uh, a big boon to people doing triathlon in terms of getting aero. What, what are some of the other sort of top five things that people can do to save Watts and be more aero, uh, without breaking the bank? You know, I would say, okay, so obviously aero bars and they don't have, you don't have to buy a thousand dollar aero bar system. Um, you know, really there's not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot in, in the base bars to be honest. So if you get something that's has a good 
that has a good shape. So it looks more or less wing shape for the base bar. And even if it's just some decent clip-ons that fit, you're going to be 98% there. Um, uh, Aero helmet. And, you know, that that's a that's sort of a tricky one because everybody's like what's the fastest helmet um it depends yeah. <laughs> um but um the the giro i would say if i were going to recommend one to anybody right now i would probably recommend either the giro or um the giro arrowhead or the pock octal um which is the I think, no, I'm, I'm sorry. It's a Cerebell, um, the Pox Cerebell. So they're Pox Aero helmet. Um, and, um, I'm trying to think what, what's the other one that's been testing relatively well. Um, the, the new laser is not too bad. Um, but basically, you know, those are kind of in the top two or three. Um, they might not be the fastest for each person. Um, but you're probably going to be okay going with that and not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a, a, a bad, a, a bad choice. Um, uh, one of the big things, and this is the kind of a big thing that has, uh, come on recently is well, recently in the last, well, since all this testing has really started taking place, um, is tri suits. So, um, a good, well-fitting tri-suit that generally has sleeves is, is going to be a, a bit faster than, um, you know, a sleeveless tri-suit. And it doesn't hold true all the time. I mean, these are sort of... These are generic, uh, generic recommendations. Yeah, yeah so generic. I, I mean, you know, the... the um, it starts getting more expensive after that. Like wheels obviously are a big deal. Yeah, wheels are wheels are wheels are fast. You don't necessarily have I mean, you can get something like the the flows or you know, a good set of used heads or something like that online or or whatever. You don't have to buy a brand new set of NVs or a brand new set of heads or whatever. Um and you're gonna be most of the way there um with with those wheels. Um Honestly, you know, this is not an aero thing, but really good tires and latex tubes are probably your best bang for your buck. Um, because if you get, let's just say the, the Grand Prix 5000s, um, which I think the fastest, the fastest tire out right now is the Vittoria uh, Corsa Speed, but it's a bit fragile. I've not had too many problems with it, but I know people who have. So let's just go with back up one little step and say the, the new, the new continental 5,000, um, that with latex tubes, um, are going to save you as much as say like an aero helmet. Um, so, and that's, that's a super, I mean, that's what, if you pay full boat retail for them, that's 140 plus. So 170 bucks for tires and tubes. Um, and you know, that's going to save you, you know, latex tubes or three to four Watts a, a, a wheel. So, you know, things like that are, it's the little things that matter. Um, you know, lace up shoes. If you want to, if you want to go all out, um, you know, do the lace up shoes with, uh, the, um, uh, the quick laces or, 
the elastic laces or whatever, those have, those have been shown to be a lot faster than the, the, the dials, you know, so um, than the BOA stuff. So you're looking at like, you know, five, six watts there. So little things like that. Um, yeah, they add up. It's the marginal gains theory runs again, right? So, yeah. 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 Okay, so that's really helpful. So aero helmets, aero bars, uh, proper tires and latex tubes, um, aero wheels, of course, and then potentially the shoes. So those are all yeah. uh, really helpful suggestions. Uh, last question for you. Is uh -huh. aero really just for TT or does aero have a role in other disciplines as well? Um, no, I, I think, you know, it, it's like I said in the beginning, aero is sort of always on. Right. So, you know, on the road or um, track mass start stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Arrow is important. You know, I think if you, you know, the Tour de France is on right now. And if you look at what everybody's wearing, uh, you know, 15 years ago, uh, if you look back and see what uh, what guys were wearing, you know, that. The, the jerseys were baggy. There was, uh, you know, they had the helmets were big and vented, which is fine. Um, you know, the, the socks were all super short. Um, and now everybody, whether it's a Jersey or, um, most, most of the guys, especially cause it's all flat stages this first week, for the most part, everybody's wearing, you know, what is essentially a skin suit or, kind of what the tri suits look like now with the, the full zip and they open up in the front. So it's sort of like a Jersey attached to bib shorts. Um, and essentially it's skin suits and they all have aero road helmets. Um, they're wearing tall socks, um, that are, that are designed for aero. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, in fact, uh, just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll toot my own horn here real quick. The, the last two stages, uh, when we were recording this, so uh, Alaphilippe won, and then uh, Viviani won. So it was De Kunic Quick Step won the last two stages, and the socks that they were wearing, I helped develop with Defeat out of um, which is right down the road for me in North Carolina. So um, those were, you know, basically we went to the wind tunnel and tested a bunch of different things to to figure out what was fastest, and we came up with a sock that's about eight watts faster than a bare leg. So, um, that, know, that's that, why the UCI is spending so much time measuring socks, I guess. Yeah. I mean, to a, to a certain degree. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, skin. I mean, I think Jim Manton, uh, I give him full credit for this cause he, I think he coined the, the, the idea that skin is slow. He, and he, that's sort of his, um, catchphrase is skin is slow and it's true. Um, and it's funny when we were actually testing some of these things, when we'd pull the sock higher, it would test faster and then we'd push it down to the UCI limit and it would test a little bit slower. So yeah, absolutely, you know, covering the leg and, and that kind of thing. And that's, it was sort of, I saw something on Facebook, oh, I don't have better things to do. And it's like, well, uh, you're talking about in a team time trial that was won by 20 seconds over, you know, over a half an hour race. Um, you know, these particular, you know, the, the socks could save anywhere from half a second to three quarters of a second per K. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, do they have some things better to do? Yeah, of course they do. But, 
it is it is a it is a technology um, that uh, you know they're trying to keep the the the, the playing field playing, level. Yeah, yeah, playing level. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know you, you you there was a great meme going around about how uh, you know a, a, a team car had been busted by police full of like pairs of socks that were illegal, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thought was quite hilarious. But, but but when you put it that way, I think it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, uh, I mean. It's it's kind of one of these things that you know, I, I this is this is what I this is what I do you know I, I kind of geek out and nerd out on all this stuff and um, you know it's definitely uh, some people say it takes the fun out of <laughs> takes the fun out of things when you're calculating every gram that you save in aerodynamic drag and that kind of thing but um, you know uh, to me it's like. Uh, as a at this point you know i'm 47 so i don't quite have the engine that i did when i was in my 20s but i still race against guys that are that age so i need every little advantage that i can get so that's yeah yeah of (laughs) course yeah i i again you know and, and see what i can see what i can come up with so uh, Heath Dotson would call himself a reformed triathlete. I would call him uh, a cyclist who's lost his way. He is uh, a head coach for HD Coaching and uh, together with Brian Stover runs the Aero Camp. He has joined me today uh, from Asheville, North Carolina to talk all things Aero. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, Heath. Absolutely. And now it's time for the Triathlete Routard, that segment of the show when I am joined by a guest to discuss a race on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendar that is a worthwhile spot to go to visit and race. For today's episode, I'll be talking about one of the races held in the southwestern United States, specifically the race held in Lubbock, Texas, each June. And joining me to discuss that race is a friend of the podcast, Sean Hale. Sean was here a little while ago to talk with me about the Eagleman races for the very first episode of the Routard, and I'm happy to have him back to talk about Ironman 70.3 Lubbock, where he recently won his age group and was the fifth overall finisher. Welcome again, Sean. Thank you. So this race has an interesting history. I understand that uh, it was previously called Buffalo Springs because its location was out at a lake outside of town, and now it has been renamed 70.3 Lubbock. Uh, you've done both versions of the race, and so we'll compare and contrast the two, but why don't we just focus initially on the current race and its current venue? Um, in its current format, is it a race that signs up very quickly, or can people wait around and make a last-minute decision about signing up? No, this, uh, I mean, to be frank, Lubbock's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's usually a smaller field, um, hence why I do pretty well there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, no, you can, you can wait. I, I signed up on the Monday before the race this year. So, I mean, you can wait till the last minute. You can, you can, you can, I think you can sign up, you know, two days before whenever they first open athlete registration, I believe. So don't you have to worry about that. And in terms of getting there, uh, how I know Lubbock is a fairly small town, but I imagine they must have an airport. Uh, What's the easiest way for people to get in and out of there? Yeah. So Lubbock, I think it's about 300,000 people. It certainly has an airport. I've never flown there um, because I live in Houston, which is about eight hour drive. So it kind of makes more sense to just drive. It's kind of a, on the edge of, of what you'd want to do. Probably. Um, there's a bunch of cities that are about five hours away. Um, Dallas, Austin, Oklahoma city, Albuquerque, El Paso. I think those are all like five to six hours in that range. So, 
Um, those people would probably want to drive, but otherwise uh, you can get a flight into Lubbock. And Buffalo sure. Springs used to be a fairly popular race because it was one of the last half Ironmans that retained slots for Kona. And since that changed, I gather the race has become more of a local kind of feel. Yeah. So I think um, I'm, I don't have that much history in the sport. I've only been doing this a few years. So I do know that, yeah, it did used to have Kona slots. I do know that it's still independently owned. So maybe that's why they had Kona slots longer than other races. I'm not sure. But yeah, it used to be a pretty big deal to try and get Kona slots there. But um, it, it's been known as a very, a very hard course. Um, and obviously, if you hold a race in Texas in the last weekend of June, the conditions are going to be pretty right, tough. Right, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay, let's focus on the course. So uh, what uh, body of water is the swim in? So now it's held in, I think it's, Dunbar Historic Lake is the actual name. Um, I'd say it's more like a pond. <laughs> it's very, very small to be called a lake. Um, but I think it is spring fed as well or creek fed and it has a dam. Um, from what I heard, this is all hearsay. Um, and so I went out to check it out. Well, I guess you had to drop through so that, so I guess I'll, let me cover some history on, on the previous race and this race. Um, so previously, the great thing about this race was it was, uh, you know, both transitions were in the same spot. You didn't have to check your bike in the day before. You just had to show up to check yourself in by 6 p.m. the night before the race, and then you could bring your bike in the morning. So it was very easy for people in Texas to kind of show up, like drive on Saturday morning, race on Sunday, and then drive home. Um, but now there's two transitions. You have to check your bike in the day before, and it's pretty much like most other 70.3s at this point. So um, I went out there to check my bike in and just do the practice swim, mainly to swim out to the first turn buoy and try to check, you know, check for the sighting lines because it looked like you'd be able to kind of cut the corner on this swim a little bit if you hug the shoreline, and I wanted to check that out. Um, but I guess the things that I noticed during the practice swim was the water seemed really warm. Um, but this race is, is, has a reputation for always being a wetsuit legal swim. So it's going to be interesting to see if that changed, um, with a new, with a new body of water, but everybody was saying that they were here and it was going to be wetsuit legal, that they were measuring the water down at the dam at 70 degrees. So, um, personally, I think, uh, it was definitely not 70 degrees, but, um, I mean, as far as siding on the course, it was a simple, a simple swim one loop, you swim, you swim down, you make two turns, you swim back. Um, it was a rolling start this year. It had been wave starts in the past. Um, I don't know what else. Was what the else sun ever a problem with sighting? No, I mean, this race, we started at six thirty. Um, so in the South it's, you know, I think the sun, I think sun rises somewhere around six fifteen. So the sun was, was low enough to where it was never an issue, at least going off towards the front. Okay, what about T1? Uh, anything remarkable about that? You did mention it's point-to-point, -point, so I imagine they have a way of getting your stuff from T1 back to the finish. Right, so um, they gave you um, a bag, so whenever you got out of the water, you were, you were to put your wetsuit and your goggles and everything in this bag um, before you left transition with your bike and everything, so that they just grabbed all the bags and brought it, and that was fine. Um, 
All right, let's talk about the bike course. I, I've looked at the profile. It's got, uh, yeah, reason, I mean, it's 1,800 feet of climbing. It looks like that's all contained within about three hills. It doesn't look like an overly challenging course. Uh, what was your assessment uh, actually riding it? Yeah, so um, Lubbock's known for its wind. Um, and last year, um, we had sustained winds 25 to 30 miles an hour with gusts to 45, so it lived up to the hype. This year, the winds were, were pretty low, so it wasn't a factor. Um, a little bit of a tailwind on the way out, and on the way out, it's kind of a net downhill to get to the canyon. And then, like you said, you go through the canyon four times, essentially. So there's four short descents and four, you know, short, punchy climbs. And then it's kind of a, a net uphill on the way back into town and, and a little bit of a headwind. So um, gener- I guess, you know, not slow, but not, not really fast either, um, compared to some other races I've done. So, um, do some did you breath. notice, uh, much in the way it looks like it, it's an out and back pretty much, isn't it? Did it's you notice any drafting as you were coming back? Was there packs or anything like that? No, I saw one guy. I mean, you can never really tell when you're going the opposite direction, but I saw one guy that was up on the bullhorns, you know, close to a guy's wheel, but you can't tell if he's just going around him at that split second or not, you know, it's kind of hard to tell. So, but no, I didn't see any pack. Like I said, it's a smaller it's a smaller field as well. So with a rolling start and a smaller field, I mean, it's pretty. Any uh, danger points on the course that people need to be wary of? Sharp curves or dangerous descents? Yeah, so that's the one. I'd say the one bad course is some of the roads are kind of bumpy, um, and the two descents that are technical happen to be some of those roads. So you know, the time you lose going up the hill, you don't really get to make up going down the hill because it's so bumpy. You can, Like, I don't feel comfortable just bombing the descents because just one little bump, you know, you could crash. So, um, but that's kind of out of the race, race people's control. You can't really, you can't really repave the roads. Um, there's a straight descent that you can, you can really bomb. And that was fun. Um, there's one stretch of road on the, uh, I guess east west section is really rough on the way out of town and then on the way back in. Um, but other than that, it's, it's fairly straightforward, like course, and you know, gen- generally flat. And then uh, looking at T2, I noticed that's back in town. So uh, you had to set that up obviously the day before. Right. So you were to put your stuff in a bag and then go put it in your spot in T2 the day before. I guess you were allowed to go, you know, put your run nutrition in the morning before if you wanted to, but, um, I chose not to. And I guess if I had to do it over again, I would choose to do that because I put a flask, a flask in that bat in my run bag the day before. And I waited till the evening. So the sun was down before I put the bag in there because I didn't want the sun just baking it all, all, you know, all day. Um, but by the time I had gotten to that bag race, you know, during the race, the sun had been beating down on my nutrition and it was warm and it's kind of gross. So I'd say that's, that's a disadvantage to the two, the two transitions. Now people, like I had my family with me, so we just drove straight to the race start race morning. But if you didn't, then you wanted to catch a shuttle. Um, like you could park on campus, put your stuff in your T2 bag and then take the shuttle to the race start. Um, you, you know, that wouldn't be an issue for you because right. you were already there. And, and uh, uh, when you say campus, yeah. you're talking about uh, Texas Tech University, right? 
Right. Yeah. So the run is on Texas Tech's campus, the whole thing. You do two loops. And looking at that run profile, it's pancake flat. I mean, that looks like a very fast run course. It is flat. Yeah, it was very nice. So contrast that to to what it used to be. It used to be brutal because uh, Lake's going to be flat because the run was around Buffalo Springs Lake before. But, I mean, there's only a very short section that seems reasonably flat. The rest of it, you're going up five feet, down five feet, up 10 feet, up down 10 feet. And then there's this, you know, to climb out of the canyon twice. It's about a third of a mile and I think about seven, eight percent. So um, I'm I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I've walked that uh, four times in two races. (laughs) I wasn't sad to see it gone, I guess. I kind of wanted, kind of wanted revenge on it, but on the other hand, you know, it was kind of nice to have a flat run where you can kind of settle into your pace. And I'd say this run course was set up um, really well. It, it it was broken up well um, to where it seemed like you were always, you know, getting into a new section and it seemed to go by pretty and, quickly. And uh, was it shaded or is it fairly open the whole time? It's fairly open. Um, I seemed like the first lap I was getting some more shade, I think from just the sun being low, but by the second lap, it was it was pretty much all sun. And in terms of uh, course scenery, is this a, a pretty course to ride and run? Uh, how would you rate it? I think parts of the bike course are interesting, like the canyons. Um, some of it's just pancake flat and you know farmland or whatever. Um, I thought the run course was pretty. The campus is actually it's actually you know, really nice. Put out um, lots of open space. Um, my kids liked, you know, hanging out in the shade trees. I got some big shade trees and stuff that are not on the course or, you know, not on the roads or whatever. But um, it's, I'd say it's, it's okay. And then the weather. I, you mentioned the wind is uh, often a factor. And, of course, it's Texas in June, which uh, means usually heat and yeah. humidity. Uh, how reliable is that? And, well, we got off this year in both, both cases. I think the high temperature for the day was in the mid nineties and the winds were only like 10, 15 miles an hour. And like last year, the winds were, but it was sustained 20, 30, 45 mile an hour gusts. And the high temperature last year was 108, if I believe I have that correctly. So, um, last year when I got off the bike, I got maybe 200 yards of the run and wanted to quit. <laughs> yeah. So this year, yeah, yeah. So this year, uh, it was it was much better. I felt really good for for three miles or so, like I wasn't even running, and then and then it started to get hard. So yeah, it was much easier this year. I mean, just overall take home point: is this a race that you recommend? Is this one that uh, you think people should really consider as a a June race, or is this one that uh, well, there are other options out there? I mean, I wouldn't plan a season around it, but if you need a race to plug in, um, I think it's you know. Like I said, it's a small field. It's a chance to get a good result. If you want a world slot, I think that the roll downs are usually pretty good. Um, the race organizers have a lot of passion for the sport. Um, yeah, it's one of those races that has a real cult following and has been, uh, you know, it's been on the circuit for a long time. And I think it, it's a it's a testament and a tribute to those independent owners that you mentioned earlier. They've really done a great job at keeping this race alive. Right. Oh, yeah. That reminds me to bring up probably the coolest thing about this race is since it's an independent race, they don't give you like for the awards instead of giving giving you the standard 
you know, little metal Iron Man symbol uh, or whatever, they have real trophies. And um, they're like these bronze buffalo statues. And they're really cool, really cool trophies. So if you want a cool trophy, it's, it's a good race go. target. All right. Uh, Sean Hale is a member of Team Everyman Jack. He uh, won his age group at the Ironman 70.3 Lubbock back in June. He is going to his first Kona World Championships this coming October. And he joined me today on the Triathlete Routau to discuss this race in Texas. Thank you so much for being here, Sean. It was a great pleasure having you on again. Thanks. And that's it for another episode of the TriDog Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with former professional mountain bike racer and now medical student Stephen Edinger, and the triathlete Utah will visit the Emerald Isle for a review of the inaugural Ironman Cork. Until then, train hard, train healthy.